When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Emma Barnett and welcome to Woman's Hour from BBC Radio 4. Hello and welcome to the programme. And in this special edition of Woman's Hour, you're going to hear two women reunited over a cause. A cause that has defined one of their lives and is increasingly a bigger part of the others. It also happens that one of the women is set to be the future Queen Consort, as recently announced by Her Majesty. Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, first met Diana Parks in 2016 at a meeting of the domestic abuse charity Safe Lives, where Diana shared the story of what had happened to her daughter Joanna. Joanna, known as Jo to her family and friends, was battered to death in 2010 by her estranged husband with their two children within earshot. He was later imprisoned and Diana, in her early 70s, immediately took her two grandchildren, who were nine and ten, to where she lives on the Isle of Man and began parenting all over again in retirement. Camilla heard in great detail that story, sitting in a circle with Diana, and in the years since has worked to lift the shroud of silence around domestic abuse, becoming the patron of that charity Safe Lives and making several speeches saying she will do anything to help survivors of domestic abuse. Well, in this exclusive interview, we reunite the two women. And as you will hear... Diana has done an extraordinary job in raising her grandchildren, who are now adults. It is also Camilla's first interview since it was announced she would be Queen Consort when her husband Prince Charles becomes King. She gives her reaction to that and explains why, when Queen Consort, she will continue to support victims and survivors of domestic abuse and their families, making her the first person in that position to work on this cause, which disproportionately affects women. A warning here that the detail of the violence in this interview could upset some of our listeners. But here is Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall and Diana Parks. If we could go back to when you very first met uh, in 2016, which of course was an incredibly powerful moment, I know, for both of you. And um, Your Royal Highness, I wondered if I could start with you by asking what, what you remember about meeting and and sort of sitting you were in a circle I believe. I was so deeply shocked I don't think in those days I really knew that much about domestic abuse because it was something that we were all brought up to be it was a very hush-hush subject and uh, it was a taboo subject so to actually sit there and have somebody talking about it with With the the mother mother of who it had happened to sitting beside I well, I'll, I'll never forget that moment, and I don't think I would be as involved in it now 
if I hadn't met you. Thank I mean, you. You were the one that started out my passion. Thank you so and, much. And I remember saying to you at the time, I, I, you know, I don't know what it is, but I really, really want to do something to help. Thank you. That's so how much. it all started. Yes. And I and I wonder from your memory, of course, that, that what was being described is incredibly violent, incredibly distressing for, for you, but obviously a story you knew all too well. What was that like, I suppose, sitting with this audience, of course, a, a member of the royal family, oh, yeah. listening to this because you have tried to, to make it your life's work since to, to have some impact in this area? Well, Joe had been killed in 2010, so this was six years yeah. later. So, I mean, it still obviously brings tears. You never get over the grief, but you learn to walk alongside it, really. And of course, when you hear all the story again, it makes it brings everything back. But you never, you never a day goes by when you don't give it some thought. And especially looking after the children, who were my salvation. <laughs> well, I think also what's very special about us being here together is I came to visit you and we did a programme. You were my editor on my radio programme on Five Live just after the first part of lockdown. And it was still a very strange time in the country. It was in 2020, in June, if I recall correctly. And we were talking about themes of some of the, the causes you support. And if we started with domestic abuse because lockdown really put the spotlight on when your home wasn't safe. Yes. And when we were on air together, Diana, while I was here, the next room, I believe, um, you actually texted in. I know, but I don't know why. <laughs> but I, did, I just thought, oh my God, you're talking about Joe. <laughs> and so you were listening to I Emma was listening. Life, yes, you? you see, the radio. Yes. <laughs> or the wireless. wireless. <laughs> you call it the wireless. We're calling it the radio, but, yeah. but both of you, I know, are, are big fans of the power of that. And that's in part why you did the programme, to reach people. Mm. And um, I, I think what was so extraordinary, and I remember you saying this, was that you spoke in that message about taking in your grandchildren mm. and you have raised them. You know, mm. you, were, you were 71 when this happened mm -hmm. and you're now 82, 82. Yes. if I'm allowed to say. Um, and they're now in university in their final years. And I remember, Mum, you said, I can't relate, I can't imagine how it would have been to have taken in your grandchildren. And I, I remember you sort of saying that as a bond. Well, I do. I remember thinking, I mean, mine were a little bit younger than yours, but I thought to myself, if it was me, and suddenly aged, the same sort of age, to take in grandchildren, mm. it's, it's not easy. It couldn't have been easy well, for you. Well, it, it, it just was the natural thing to do. Mm. I never gave it a second mm. thought. Yeah. I just thought, well, I said I'd even stay with them in their house whilst they finished mm. that, you know, year, really. Mm. And, and they said, no, Granny, we want to come back to the Isle of Man. Mm. We love the Isle of Man. And you probably saved their lives. Well, they saved mine, mm. that's for sure. I just love them to bits. And um, What they, did they make of you coming here today? Well, I mean, they were delighted, obviously. They said, good luck, Granny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> can can I just ask Diana something? Please. Diana, I just, I, what I wanted to know was um, how it affected your grandchildren. Do you talk to them about it, sort of? Kate, Katie was much more able to speak about it. Yeah. This was they were just near, they could hear mm. her being hit. Mm. And this is not a gunshot, one bullet, you're dead. This was 14 strikes on her head with a claw hammer, you know? And when I had to go and identify her, I couldn't believe what he'd done to her, you know? 
I, I, I really couldn't. And it's the children who suffer so much. Yes. And the sad thing is, you know, that when you talk about domestic abuse, if children are in a family where there is domestic abuse, they grow up thinking that that's normal behaviour. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, you're going to hear from two very special guests, Diana Parks and Hetty Nanton. Now, in the clip that you just heard, that was Her Majesty the Queen Consort Camilla in conversation with Di about her lovely daughter, Jo. Since that conversation, Di's been to Buckingham Palace. It was actually on November the 29th for a Violence Against Women and Girls reception, hosted by Her Majesty, the Queen Consort Camilla, who had asked Di to be there and had asked whether she would bring the children, Alex and Katie too, to which she agreed. Now what's fascinating is that Diana and her daughter Jo and the children are the reason that Her Majesty, the Queen Consort Camilla, was so moved and so inspired to get involved with the cause of ending domestic abuse. It's so extraordinary and it's all down to Diana and Jo. And it's exactly why people should hear real-life cases and the impact when your loved one is murdered. It has a huge, significant and catastrophic impact on everybody, particularly the children that are left behind. Now, you're going to hear for yourself just how special Di is, as well as her lovely daughter Jo, who's no longer with us because an entitled man violently ended her life, leaving two children without a mother, and leaving Di without a daughter. And yes, I feel incredibly emotional about that. Every case that I work, I do become invested in. And I really want you to hear from the people themselves, from Di, the impact that his actions have had on her and her life and the children that were left behind, who are now adults doing incredible things. So a bit of the backstory behind how I had this conversation Well, it was Hetty Nanton, the wonderful chair of Refuge, the domestic abuse charity in the UK, who reached out to me and asked if I'd covered Joe's case. And of course, I agreed. And also, this case is just so important that you hear the detail of it, particularly in light of the fact that Brown, Joe's killer, will be coming out of prison in 2023, having served just 13 years for killing Joe. Yes, you heard that right. 13 years. And we get into exactly what went on at trial and how that came to pass. Now, we also discuss how Brown charmed and love-bombed Joe, and how he subsequently controlled her and terrorised her before brutally killing her on October the 31st, 2010, at her house, Tongue Cottage, whilst dropping off the children, Katie and Alex, who were there. And you'll hear about that. So yes, we get into the graphic details about the murder itself, as well as the events leading up to that horrific event. And yes, it's another murder in slow motion, because these cases do not come out of the blue. And it's so important that everyone hears the build-up, the escalation, everything that goes into the planning and the preparation. These do not come out of the blue. And that's why there's such a huge opportunity to intervene and prevent and to stop these murders and murderers and killers before they do the most lethal thing. Okay, so it goes without saying, but I'm still going to say it anyway, that these episodes are upsetting and might well be triggering and they will certainly be angry making. 
Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so that was a longer introduction and you can hear how much this interview means to me. And it's really important for you all to hear the detail of what's gone on and the legacy of what's still happening now for Di and her grandchildren. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Di Parks and Hetty Nanton. Now today I'm joined by two really special guests and I really want you both to introduce yourself before we get into the details of this incredibly important case. So please, Diana, you go ahead and introduce yourselves. I'm Diana Parks, the mother of Joanna Simpson, who was killed by her estranged husband on October the 31st, 2010. Thank you, Diana. And Hetty? Yeah, and I'm Hetty Barkworth Nanton. I was Joe's one of Joe's close friends, and I'm also now the chair of Refuge, the domestic abuse charity in the UK. Who does fantastic work being the voice for victims and survivors. So, you know, huge and warm welcome. And I know this isn't going to be easy talking about Joe and what happened. And before we get into the what happened, let's talk about who Joe was. All my work, and I know, Hetty, you know this, but all my work is always about centering the victims and making sure their voices are heard and that they're not footnotes in their own cases, which can sometimes happen. So, Diana, is there anything that you would like to share about Jo, who she was, and and bring her to life for my listeners? What was Jo like? She was bursting with energy, Jo. Nothing was too much trouble for her. She was absolutely loved by everybody. I loved her to bits and I miss so much all the things that mothers and daughters do. We used to chat several times a day. How I envy my friends who talk about their daughters and what they've been doing. Um, So I miss her terribly. (laughs) Oh, Diana. It's so hard. It's so hard every time... I ask you to talk about Jo. I mean, she was your gorgeous baby, your daughter, your life. And of course, you've been looking after her children. And I really just wanted my listeners to understand that Jo isn't just a statistic. She's not just a number. And certainly the way media, the media headlines can characterize cases, they can focus on all the wrong things. So I always like to hear from the people who knew and loved the person the most and and Hetty can what memories can you share of of Joe you were a great friend of hers what was she like for you and how did you meet so I can read to you some of what I wrote when I did the eulogy actually for her she we met because both of our youngest children were at nursery together when they were both two I think I went to Joe's daughter's second birthday and that's when we met and we just hit it off I went into the house and the sun was shining and Joe, who was really incredibly sunny and vibrant and lovely, just said, would you like a glass of wine? And that kind of was the start, really. And we just became best buddies. And she really was my best friend. She was a real confidant, a source of strength. And we were kind of silly partners in crime as well. But once we became friends, she also was really great at maintaining friends. So she wouldn't let me slip away through laziness or busyness, um, which life can sometimes do. And I genuinely never had a friend like her and she will never be replaced. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I really get the sense from the way both of you talk about Jo of just how vibrant and her zest for life, just how much energy she had and attention to give to other people. And that although she was multitasking many things, certainly as a mother, we, we have to multitask many things, but she could still give her attention to people and make them feel special and important in her life. And that's a rare gift, actually isn't it? And it sounds like she was smart and intelligent and had hobbies like the gardening, the cooking. What an incredible woman and what an incredible mother. Let's talk about when she met Brown. What happened in terms of, you know, what you knew about the relationship? And perhaps I'll come to you first, Diana. What what did you know about Brown and her meeting him? She was obviously quite vulnerable after her divorce from her first marriage. And she was taken by a friend to South Africa, and that's where she met him. He was the pilot of the co-pilot of the plane that she'd gone on. I think he just bowled her off her feet, really. God knows why. Um, I'm afraid. She brought him over to the Isle of Man to meet her father and me. We were not impressed with him at all. And I don't really think that he cared particularly for Joe when I think back. Why were you not impressed by him? How did he present himself? He was cold. He was full of his own importance and just didn't seem interested in anything particularly, just himself, I would say. Would you agree with that, Hetty? I can see you nodding your head. Yeah, without a doubt. He would come across as surly and Obviously, I wasn't there when he met Diane Chris, but he would come across as surly when you met him. He was just not at all engaged in anybody else in anybody's life, anybody else's life. And the only way I ran, I managed to get any conversation with him was because I used to work for British Airways. So I was able to create a hook in terms of the conversation that at least would create some kind of dialogue. But other than that, he he just didn't want to know. He wasn't interested in, in anybody else. My Joe's father, my late husband, said that after he left, he said, there's going to be trouble. But who could have imagined the kind of trouble there was? The two of them really were. You couldn't get. My, my hypothesis is that he was incredibly charming when she met him. Um, so he could pull on the charm if he wanted to. But you, in terms of raw characters, you couldn't have met two such different people. He was an energy taker and she was an energy giver. And she would be constantly trying to fill the gaps that Rob was creating in terms of how, how he made people feel, 
what he did. She was constantly overcompensating for him because she's a giver and she wanted to fill that gap that he was just sapping from everybody. But what a prophetic thing to say, Di. There's going to be trouble. And, you know, I always rely on mother's judgment as well. It's a question I always ask, what was your impression of the person? You know, normally it's the man. And if you have that immediate, there's something not quite right, it tends to be proven right, actually. Was that something that you felt straight away, Di, when you met him, that something was off? Straight away, I didn't like him. And I couldn't really understand what Joe saw in him, to be honest. I absolutely couldn't. But I mean, by this time, Joe was uh, um, 34. And, you know, (laughs) what do you say to your daughter, really? And I think charm can be very disarming. I talk about that a lot, you know, when people do use charm. And you talked, Hetty, about the BA part, British Airways and being a pilot. That comes with kudos, doesn't it? And that can be used as a way to charm and groom as well, because you think that someone's of a certain character, right? If they're a British Airways pilot with responsibility, that's a huge responsibility and bright and smart and all of those things. And you used the word whirlwind, die when we spoke. You th- thought it was a whirlwind relationship. Was it quite short and quick in terms of... Very short. It was very short, wasn't it, Hetty? Yeah. Um, I mean, I... Th- can't remember which month she met him, maybe the October or the September, and they were married in the February. I mean, (laughs) unbelievable. Would you say there was love bombing there? Was he really trying to win her heart? It might not be part of what you saw, but... I would say he definitely saw her lifestyle because she had her own house, and uh, I think he rather liked that idea. Yes, I think that he thought he was onto a good thing, which sounds terrible. I agree. I totally agree. And also she was relatively vulnerable at the time because she was coming up to, she was concerned about wanting to have children. She always wanted children and she felt like the clock was ticking. So I think she was vulnerable. He probably saw that. He definitely would have been absolutely bowled away by a woman with her own home you know, with beautiful grounds, which has, as a result of her absolute hard work and those of her family. And you know, for him, it was a ticket to ride. Yes. I mean, smart, intelligent, attractive. Joanna really had the whole package, right? That's what I see in looking at her life and her lifestyle and who she was, good friends, and she really had everything going for her. So I could understand why he set her as a mark. I call it a target. You know, that it was her lifestyle as well that he was attracted to. And it and it is quite important to say that she did have wealth as well. I mean, she worked hard from the sounds of it. She went to university and I feel an affinity because I went to the same university and it sounds like she worked hard and she set up a bed and breakfast, which were come on to. She didn't rest on her laurels, but a lot of it was his perception of her as well, of what he wanted in terms of that lifestyle. So the whirlwind is an interesting thing to identify and potential love bombing. And so they marry. And, and you said something interesting, Di, about the her marrying him, that she felt on honeymoon he wasn't the person that she thought he was. Was that something that she had confided in in both of you about? Yes, absolutely. She, He was very rude to the staff in the hotel they were staying in, and she didn't like that at all. 
out in South Africa and various other things that she didn't like that he did. So it was, a, it, she saw his true colours, sadly, which he'd hidden from her till they were married. Yes, image management can happen, can't it? I know Hetty will know this all too well, but I do talk about image management. And that's why when I advise people when they're in relationships, see the person in every way, light, shape, form, travel with them, go to different places, see how they interact with the world. You know, not just on their good days when they're presenting this certain image when you go out with them for a walk in the woods or whatever it might be. So it sounds like she saw the the true brown whilst they're on honeymoon. But unfortunately, she fell pregnant, didn't she? And Months after the marriage, she became pregnant. And of course, obviously, she was delighted and, um, well, to be pregnant. And she just made the best of her life. She just decided she couldn't leave and she was going to make the best of it. And why I said unfortunately, because of course, the children have brought you so much joy and she was an incredible mother was that obviously when you are pregnant, you then have another vulnerability. You're wedded to that person forever, actually, when you have a baby with them. And you mentioned that she felt that she couldn't leave once that happened, although she was delighted to be pregnant and she really wanted children. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Was that what she confided in you that she felt, you know, he wasn't the right person, but she was excited to have her baby? Joe was always trying to see the best, even in brown, to be honest. She really was. And she tried, I think, she, because she wanted her life to be easier. Whereas, you know, if she fought him as he really deserved, because he was so awful to her, that it would have made matters worse. She was really a peacemaker, Joe. Yeah, definitely. So she just tried to make the best of... Any situation. So what happened? She she ended up having two babies with him. And what was the relationship like as it continued on? Obviously, pregnancy is very hard in and of itself. And having children isn't, isn't easy. Was he supportive? I mean, was he a hands-on father or what, what happened? He was a hands-on father, I must say. But Joe, unfortunately, had to have an emergency cesarean with the first baby on Christmas Eve. And um, I whizzed over straight after to care, for, you know, to like a mother does. And he never made me feel welcome in any shape or form when I was there. And again, after the second child was born, I went down to look after the first baby. And he made me feel most unwelcome, most unwelcome. He would never, ever sit with you. He never, when he'd been on his long haul trips, he would never come home and sit with Joe. She was always on her own. Even if he was back from a long haul trip, he would either go running or sit up in his study. And even when his mother came to stay, he wouldn't even sit with them then. Is that your experience, Hetty, that she was quite lonely and isolated? She was desperately lonely and isolated. And I came, I came on the scene when when Katie was two, so, um, you know, kind of wasn't there in those very early days. But even once I came on the scene, Joe and I used to confide a lot uh, with each other. And uh, it's absolutely, as I reflected in terms of the conversations that I had with her, is that she was trying to make the best of something that was not, was really, really quite bad um, and quite bad in terms of, but she was determined to make it work for the sake of the children. 
So, but bad in terms of isolating her all the time, um, not engaging with her in any way, shape or form, um, ensuring that kind of make putting her down a lot. Yes. You know, he, he would, he would, we'd be there as friends. He would come through the kitchen because it was sort of a bit of a circular house in terms of how it was structured. So you could walk through rooms. He would walk through the kitchen and kind of grunt. We say, oh, God, he's grunted again. But he'd always have something to say to her that would put her down. And so often, you know, you'd just see that little tear drop from her eye. Um, he was constantly making, wanting to bring her down, drag her down. If she was having fun, he'd do it even more. Because it's like, how dare, you know, just remember, you know, he'd bring her down. He'd bring her down all the time. What sort of thing would he say, Hetty? What give me an example if you were just chatting away in, in the kitchen? Like would it be about her demeanour or something about her what she was wearing or if I'm really honest, I can't recall any of the specific things he said. He would talk he would say things demeaning to her about what she's wearing. He would say something completely just awful to her about supper that she's cooked or something. But in general, I can't remember, honestly remember the things that he said. I just remember how he used to make her feel. I think he was rude to her friends, not welcoming. When they were in the house, Joe had invited them. He wouldn't welcome them in any shape or form. He found them a nuisance to be there. Yeah. And it sounds like socialising was an important thing to her, her friends and, and having people over and entertaining. So that's... It undermines her, doesn't it, of not welcoming people into your home. I can remember saying to Joe, you know, Joe, it always surprises me how Rob must speak to the passengers when he's flying a plane, <laughs> how reassuring captains usually are when they speak to, you know, the passengers of the plane. When, when I know how awful he is, I just yeah. wonder what he says, how he comes across. So that continued. I mean, that was the state of the relationship. She was quite lonely and he would go off do his long haul trips and come back. And obviously the children were growing up in this environment that it sounds like a yin and a yang environment when they're with mum. It's one thing. And then dad is quite different when he comes home and quite difficult and awkward. So what was the catalyst for Joe just thinking she'd had enough of it? Was there anything specific that happened or was it just a number of events the knife attack that made the that ended the relationship. Can you say more about that, Di? What what happened and when did it happen? Joe had been out with one of her friends, actually the friend who had complained about Rob to the police, in fact, because she'd been with her children in Windsor Great Park and he had been riding his bicycle and he rode straight at them. And they were really frightened and he just veered off at the very last minute. And she'd been with her, with the children. It was half term, I think. Well, it was holidays. It was July the 17th. Mm. And she came in, I think, about 10 o'clock at night with the children who'd been with her. And the children had gone to bed. And then he approached her with a knife that she'd just bought, a big orange handled knife that he took out of the drawer and took hold of her neck and pointed the knife at her. And she said his eyes were just black, which you hear quite often, actually, from survivors, that his eyes just went cold and black. And she said to him, 
what will happen to the children, Rob, if you kill me? And he said, you'll be dead and I'll be in prison. So it shows that he thought about it. The fact that he puts a knife to her throat, which is a threat to kill, no doubt about that. And then he says what would happen next to her shows that he had already thought about that part. And of course, his callous disregard for the children and for Joe is evident from that interaction. And Joe must have been terrified. Did she call the police at, at that stage or was she talking to you and telling you what was happening? No, she was on her own. Obviously, the children were in bed now. She managed, he, he left. It was all in the kitchen, this. And as he left, the kitchen to go up to a spare room he said I suppose you're going to ring the police and ruin my career so she didn't but but sadly she didn't ring the police she rang Belinda her really good friend like Hetty is her really good friend and and Belinda came to stay with her and the house was such that they could lock the new side of the house where she and the children were so that he couldn't get through to them both and then Belinda had to leave at five o'clock in the morning and Joe rang me and I said, for God's sake, Joe, you've got to. She said, Ma, Rob has attacked me with a knife. And I said, for God's sake, Joe, you've got to get out and come over to the island. And she said, he's got the suitcases in the room. So I said, I'll ring James. I rang her brother and I said, James, Joe's been attacked with a knife. And he went as fast as he could from London to Ascot. And he persuaded Rob to let the suitcases out of the room Rob was sleeping in. And Joe in, came over to the Isle of Man with the children. And that's when I heard him saying to her, if you tell anybody what happened, it will be the worst for you. So he said that on the phone to her? Yes. And you heard that, which again is another threat? I was listening in. So that's when we got a bodyguard, my husband's son, used to run the Brixton Academy and he had um, a big bodyguard called Big Pat and Big Pat went out to look after Joe when she went back to the cottage, to Tun Cottage. So that tells me how seriously it, Joe felt about the threat to her life. That's really important, that piece of information. Mm. I think, Laura, it might be worth just before we move on from that incident, actually just winding back a little bit, because as well as intimidating her, putting her down, making her feel worthless, um, actually, I think unlike, I, I think what kept Joe going during that period, which wouldn't happen with all survivors of domestic abuse and coercive control in that way, is Joe's strength of character meant that she was determined to continue to see her friends. She was determined to continue to speak to her, to, to her family, which I think is not always the case. But notwithstanding that, it got to the point about a year before the knife incident where, where Rob was starting to become increasingly hostile and was starting to do things and and there was evidence that he was starting to do things that were much more around much more sinister stalking characteristics. So he used to, um, obviously he'd go on long haul trips. When he came back, he would analyse the, the burglar alarm, kind of when it had been turned on and turned off. And Joe used to not only obviously use the burglar alarm when she came into the house and out of the house, but she also used to use the burglar alarm to set the alarm downstairs when she was she and the children were upstairs sleeping. So he could tell from that what time she was going to bed. 
So he used to sit her down and give her the Spanish Inquisition as to why she was coming back late, where she was going up to bed late, what she was doing, kind of, again, all designed to control her, intimidate her. Um, we found, she found receipts for a tracker device that he bought for her car. We were never able to find it, but it did come up in court subsequently. We found receipts for tracking devices for the house. Again, we weren't able to find them, but again, it came up in court later. So he was already starting to show that much more obsessive behaviour. And then in February, he phoned her from Hong Kong. I was there in the house and he was very distressed and basically said that he was having thoughts of killing her and the children with an axe. Um, I actually believed at the time, and I believe to this day, that he was doing it. If he had, it was very real, genuine thoughts, but he was sharing that with her to, again, threaten her, intimidate her and make her comply. Um, so all of that had been going on, had becoming increasingly hostile in the lead up to that knife incident. That's helpful to explain, because one of the things that registered with me, you know, when I hear perpetrators say things like, if you call the police, you'll ruin my job. And therefore, somebody who's empathetic and kind and caring will then not call the police because they don't want to upset the apple cart for the person that's the father of their children, you know, and that their job's important for them. So that tells me how empathetic, kind and caring Joe was, that her own safety and concern for herself, she actually prioritised his needs and his job. And he learned that that worked. He learned that that's who she was and he could control her that way. And it makes me very angry because it's everything that are good qualities about Joe and about women that are being exploited. And these are the softer things, aren't they, Hetty? I can see you nodding. These are the more nuanced details that people don't understand, that when they ask the question, oh, did he ever hit you? Oh, there was one time when he held a knife to my throat. Oh, but did he actually use it? No. But they don't understand all the nuanced details of what keep somebody controlled and keep somebody from talking to the police and keeps them entrapped. And Hetty will know that word, entrapped and exploiting every part of their character, their good character, to keep them controlled. And I would imagine this was absolutely horrific for Joe, who's a vivacious, you know, fun-loving person to have to live in this way, to know she's being micromanaged and controlled. And particularly when other people see you as strong and bubbly and lively and that you cope well with life and that you're a go-getter. They can't even imagine that someone could control you like this. But he's, he sounds like he worked out how to manipulate her and how to keep her controlled. And he did it through lots of different means with the tracker you know, why does he need to know what time she's setting the burglar alarm when he's off on a long haul trip? So these are the markers of coercive control and stalking. Yeah. She also true. didn't want the children to know that their father had attacked her with a knife. So he expected her to keep the secret, his secret. Yes, he was, she was protecting the children. Yeah, and so that's the double bind again, isn't it? That That she had to keep this secret, his secret, and burden herself because she's trying to protect the children, but inadvertently she's protecting him. And she's in this double bind, which is, it's not just, to say it's unfair sounds trite, just given how serious the situation was. And I can imagine for friends and family, for you, die trying to help your daughter, trying to do the best that you can. 
and and this is in 2007. So what happened? She comes to stay with you. She then goes back home and they try and work through the marriage or does she decide, no, that's it, I'm done? She says he has to go and find somewhere else to live. So he leaves. She had a bodyguard. She put up cameras, did she, in the house at that point? Or what happened in terms of... There was CCTV, which in actual fact was pulled out, wasn't it, Hetty? When he killed her, yeah. No, before the first CCTV. Do you remember at the gate? Oh, yes, 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 yes. So she had CCTV, but but, but it was pulled out and he cut the wire. That happened two or three times, actually. Yes. I mean, we never knew it was him, but who else would it be? (laughs) Yes. Right. And that's another important point. And this is what I always say to the police. When you have a pattern of coercive control and or stalking, who else is it likely to be who's doing these things that are very targeted and very specific? So he cuts the CCTV. This is 2007. And and there's a legal battle. Does that start after the knife situation? She obviously starts divorce proceedings. There was also the case of when he had, obviously, he used to have the children, you know, for periods of time. Joe was the main carer, but he would have the children for certain days. And he would get from the children the new burglar alarm code, which Joe had put in. They weren't aware, of course, they were too small to know that they were giving him the details that he desperately wanted. And he then, when Joe wasn't in the house, would break into the house or would go into the house, having got the new burglar alarm code, go into the house, go through all her private papers, see how things, the divorce was going, what her finances were like, everything. And then he was once seen by the neighbour next door who didn't know him because she'd only just moved in running across the garden, jumping a fence where he knew he wouldn't be in vision of the CCTV, which had been reinstalled. You know, there were all these things that went and on. That, that time when he was seen by the neighbour in the garden was relatively late on. I think it was, I think it may have been 2010, if not 2009, and the police were called. But they told Joe that unless he did something physical to her, they couldn't do anything. Yes. Now, you but have most, to remember that this was back in 2009-10. Um, one would hope and pray that wouldn't be the case today, but who knows? Yes, I was just thinking about the date as well there, Hetty, and it's exactly why I brought in the stalking law to ensure that those sorts of behaviours were captured within the arm of the law, that that is stalking, the fact that he was in her garden, the fact that he was using the children to get the burglar alarm code to go into the house. And interestingly, Di, you said it, you said, you know, breaking into the home while using the burglar alarm code. And and this is always the problem with coercive control and stalking. If they manage to get the code or the number or the key, the police will say, well, it's not breaking and entering because he had the code, but he's getting it through nefarious means, through exploiting the children who don't know any better, do they? And we, as adults, try and protect the children. So you don't tell them all the detail. And how could you? Daddy's doing some bad things, so don't give him information. That's an impossible conversation for Joe to have with them. But he exploited things. He did. And he would, I mean, it's sort of weird stuff as well, right? So he would often be seen in his car, just parked at the top of the driveway, behind the gate, just sat there, just watching. Which sends a clear message, doesn't it? I mean, the message it sends to Joe is, I'm here and I'm not going away and I know what you're doing. 
So all these, I mean, Hetty, you well know, the drip, 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 or that seem innocuous, unremarkable. But actually, for Joe, I'm sure it was all terrorising, actually, and terrifying. And he would send texts to her after they separated to reinforce the fact that he knew things that he wouldn't know yes. unless he was unless he was stalking her or unless he'd broken in. So he wanted her to know that he knew things and therefore he's omnipresent, omnipotent. And again, these things, why I mention omnipotence and omnipresence is that's what stalkers and coercive controllers want their victims to know. You know, I'm more powerful. I'm the bigger force in the body and, and I will always win. Yeah. And it's terrifying. I think that's, you've just said something incredibly pertinent, Laura. I will always win. And that's exactly it. And I think when we do talk about what actually happened and the lead up to it, it was all because fundamentally the build up of all of what we talked about fundamentally resulted in a a, a decision in the High Court around prenuptial agreements, which meant that he was not going to win in the divorce hearings. And he knew that and he knew he had one week to go before that divorce hearing at which he would lose. That was following the Radmacher Granatino case when he realised he wasn't going to win because Joe had offered him a large payout, but he laughed. He said parity is the thing. <laughs> parity is the route to happiness is what he would say to her. Mm. Well, that's if you come into things equally, but they didn't. And this is a very important part of the case that Joe's father wanted a prenuptial agreement, right, when they got together to protect her trust fund and her house. And therefore, that agreement was signed up to. And that's why I say they didn't come into it equally, and he signed up to that. Therefore, you can't expect parity at the end when things break down. But just to go back to that point, Hetty, because the mindset I see, the psychology and the psychopathology of stalkers and coercive controllers, and particularly the coercive controllers who are entrenched in this, I will win at all costs, is the mindset, it ends when I say it will end. And it ends how I say it will end. And those details are very important to understand that People might say, oh, well, it was a terrible divorce, or but they misunderstand the mindset of the perpetrator, that they will win at all costs, and that's when catastrophic things happen. And if people don't understand that, then the risk assessment isn't accurately understood. And that's why for professionals, it's so important. These conversations are really important for professionals and mums and dads and best friends to hear, because it's not often that they will hear the detail of the psychology of what's going on, what's going on for him, that this three-year protracted legal wrangling, when he finally discovers that he will not win, that's when the problems escalate. But he had already had in mind, and we're going to talk about what actually happened, because he already had in mind a plan. And so let's go back to the, we've got protracted legal wrangling. He finds out that he will not win and that the, the divorce is almost final. But what you discovered was that he had been actually digging a grave in the woods for some time before this finality point at court. So, and I just want to say that because it wasn't just within that week when he realises he's not going to win, it was already in his head that he might not. And therefore there was a contingency plan, it sounds like, that he was already acting on. The ideation was already there and he was acting. 
I think there's quite a profound reflection that came out in the trial. So in April of the same of 2010, they had a high court hearing and they were expecting to get closure then. But the judge was representing one of the people in the Radmacher Granatino case, which was the case around prenups. And he said, I can't hear this and I can't decide this, judge this, your divorce today, because it's all dependent on what happens in the Radmacher Granatino case. And he said to Rob, if they lose, you lose. Yes, he would urge you to settle out of court because if they lose, then you will lose. And the judge in the tri- in the murder trial, or, or it came out of evidence in the murder trial, that apparently Rob Brown, after that high court hearing was cancelled, apparently his solicitor said that he would not engage with his solicitor at all. He went very quiet and would not engage with his solicitor. And I strongly believe that that is the point at which he decided he needed a contingency plan. And that is the point at which he started to create his plans to dig the grave to prepare to be ready. Okay, that's very helpful to understand in the timeline, because normally there is a tipping point. There's something that happens, The and I'm not calling it a trigger, because there's multiple things going on all at the same time. But the ideation has to happen first, and that's normally the tipping point, and then the thinking through what's going to happen next, and then the action plan. And why I'm making that point and labouring it is because of what happened at the trial, which we will come on to. So let's talk about the 31st of October 2010, because this is when the catastrophic event happens. Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap this episode. Now, the timeline is incredibly important. The High Court case was absolutely relevant, and so was Brown's actions, his preparatory behaviour, the premeditation, and his win-at-all-costs mentality. The it-ends-when-I-say-it-ends. That is an incredibly dangerous mindset, and it's one that I see repeat when men kill women. Now, like I said, I appreciate it's not an easy listen, but it's a really important listen. Please let me know what you think. Message me on all the socials. Please show your support and please share the episode with others. Okay, take great care. Until next time, lovely listeners, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.